Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. We're all about yoga, meditation, and movement. So if that's your kind of thing, you're listening to the right podcast. So just a quick studio update. We're opening on the 28th of July. That's just a week. Oh my God, that's less than a week. And we're having a bit of a get together on Sunday the 29th to celebrate our opening. We're calling it our Sunday Sangha session. So we can't wait for this. It'll be a fun event starting off with an aerial yoga class, which unfortunately is already filled up. But I'll also be leading a meditation afterwards. We'll be having some delicious vegan food catered and our friend Nelly Nature will be bringing along some fantastic herbal teas. So it should be an amazing event. We really want to say thank you to all of the people who've supported us and the podcast. So if you're in the Melbourne area on the 29th, please come down and say hi. Also, we'll be having a week of free classes. Just go to gardenofyoga.com.au to book in. There's anti-gravity yoga, yoga, meditation, Pilates. So again, please come down and join in the fun. One of the things we want to accomplish with the studio is to build a strong community. And this just happens to be the subject of this episode. This episode is a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart and Shannon Crow. Shannon Crow is a yoga teacher and the host of the Connected Yoga Teacher podcast. As I've mentioned earlier, the theme of this episode is about building community and Shannon tells us how she managed to build a healthy and connected community both online and in the real world while living in a relatively out of the way area in Ontario, Canada. She gives us a lot of real-world advice you can put into practice straight away, and I've put into practice a few of the things she suggested, so I feel that it's something that anyone out there listening can use straight away. As per usual, I've spoken for way too long, so let's hear from Shannon. I grew up in a little tiny town called Bayfield, which is on Lake Huron in Ontario, Canada, and had a pretty fun childhood playing outside and playing sports and hanging out with my friends. That's like where I grew up. And then I moved to the Bruce Peninsula, which is a couple of hours north. So it's three hours north of Toronto, Ontario. It's still pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Still pretty rural. (laughs) Yeah. And so I've been here since I was 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. Oh, and so how did you discover yoga? I think my very first class was girls night out and it was, we were going to go for yoga. We all had little kids at home. So I think my son was one or two and it was finally like a time to get out. And then we would go to the bar afterwards. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) Life's all about balance. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, my, and then my friends were like going to do something else for girls night out. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to stick to the yoga thing, although it felt really uh, disconnected for me to then go to the bar after. So yeah. I stuck with the yoga and, and that's been quite a while now. And there must have been a moment when you decided to go from just casual yoga going to really committing to this as something you want to study and something that you want to teach. Could you tell us a little bit about that process? It was after I had my second child. So I have three kids and they're all teenagers now. Um, But when my second was born, a friend of mine who was over visiting said, you should come to this yoga class with me. I was like, well, I can't because I'm a stay-at-home mom. You know, I have these, one was off in school, but I have this baby. And she said, you know what? The teacher would be fine with it. Bring him. So that's when I started practicing every week and going to a class. And that teacher was amazing because she would not only teach the class, but she would also rock him in his little car seat. I know. (laughs) And so then she said, you know, there's a teacher training in Toronto happening. You should go. And it was Kundalini. And so was that a style that you were already practicing or... That was the class. And I mean, I was going and thinking, well, this is weird. We're doing all this chanting, but I loved how I felt after the class, like when it was done. Although I remember thinking many times, wow, we're doing something 
really strange. <laughs> I know like I've only done a few Kundalini classes and I've always started each of the sequences thinking, oh yeah, this is pretty comfortable. And then it's always just gone on that bit longer than what I'm comfortable with. And it's actually really tiring to hold your arms up in the air for that long or to spin in that many circles. Yeah. yeah. I've ever got to the transcendent stage with it myself. Well, that's interesting because when I got to the teacher training, I remember thinking the first weekend, what am I doing here? Like a whole weekend of a lot of chanting, but it was really uncovering some things about myself. Like I was doing a lot of self-learning and I was a busy mom. So by that time I had three kids and hadn't, I feel like there was years of not really thinking about myself. So that's what really dug into my yoga practice. Like I came home and had a daily practice and things really moved moved quickly in my own like, oh, that's who I am. Are there any key teachers who've really kind of struck a chord with you along the way? Like obviously that first teacher was a very pivotal person. Yeah, that, that first teacher was Susie Schmidt. I often wonder like, where is she now? I think she teaches at a college close by. And then my first yoga teacher training teacher was Satdharm Kar. So she's, that was the Kundalini training. And she's a naturopathic doctor and a Kundalini yoga teacher. So that had a big impact on me just thinking about like overall, you know, she would bring some science in and she was really, she studied with Yogi Bhajan. So she still had the like, stick with it, find out what you're going to discover about yourself kind of thing. And so that's just a real hallmark of that practice, I guess, that moment when you want to put your arms down and sit down or whatever is happening, like that's when you really dig in and stick with it and that's where the magic happens kind of thing. Yeah. And then I felt like as a new teacher, I couldn't make kundalini yoga as accessible as I wanted to so I was teaching to a lot of younger people and they were like me thinking this is weird or or they needed more of an introduction and so that's when I gravitated more to a Kripalu style yoga and I studied in Nosara with Don and Amba Stapleton in Costa Rica uh, just looking at your bio, you've done so many different trainings and so many different courses. What kind of leads you to seek out the next thing or is it just something that's happened quite organically for you? This is interesting because I think sometimes looking back now, there was definitely, you know, the desire to learn is always there for me, for sure. But I think sometimes that was fueled by feeling like I wasn't enough as a yoga teacher. I think so I just feel like that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so that would lead me to another teacher training. And there were times where it was like within the same year or year after year, taking something new in and maybe not taking the time to like integrate that and share it as much, just jumping to the next one. So I've done a bit of reflection around that. And that was a big part of, and I know we're going to talk about the podcast, it was like a big part of wanting to support teachers between share that experience. So yeah. yeah, would you like to kind of tell us a little bit more about the beginnings of the Connected Yoga Teacher podcast? I think it was feeling like I was kind of out in this wilderness by myself as a yoga teacher. And I have a fairly strong community in my local area of other yoga teachers, but there's still the feeling like everyone's busy teaching their own classes you know, sometimes I could get to a yoga class or sometimes I can have a quick tea with a yoga teacher, but it was feeling like the business side of things weren't really covered uh, in yeah, yoga teacher training. Yeah, just, definitely. Yeah. And it's changing so quickly all the time now. Like I did my teacher training about 12 years ago and the internet wasn't really nearly what it is today for yoga teachers. It was quite exactly a, had a website when I did my course. <laughs> No, I, when I first started teaching, I called all of my students oh, to let wow. them know when classes were happening. Wow. <laughs> you must have been so happy when email came along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so that's made a big difference as well, to be able to be online. 
And it was really important to me that yoga teachers continue to feel supported as professionals. So I think that there are two things happening there. I think sometimes we as yoga teachers almost and I've done this myself, tip over into more of a competitive. And for me, it feels much better when we think of a collective community. Absolutely. Mm. Like collaborate rather than compete. Yeah. And so I would always refer other yoga teachers who specialize in something other than if someone came to me and said, do you teach children's yoga? I would refer out to the local teacher that does that more than I do. Yeah. And I think that's kind of part of creating a supportive community. Then that teacher will think of you and refer back when there's something that's a bit more in your world. I think as well, it's something that is really lovely about being a yoga teacher to be a part of this network of kind of sharing and yoga teachers tend to be really nice people. So it's really lovely to see that in your Facebook group as well, because online, there wouldn't even be that direct back and forth between people who like live in the same town and know each other and send people both ways. It really is a bit more giving without an expectation of directly getting something back when you help someone across the other side of the world. But you do get the appreciation and the good vibes and just being part of a like nice, friendly, sharing community. Do you do a lot to keep things really friendly and positive in your Facebook group? Or do you think that that happens pretty organically as well? It's interesting. I think that the people that have been longtime members in that Facebook group, they kind of know and set the tone. Mm. So that's a big part of it. But at the beginning of it, for sure, let me tell you, at the beginning, I just felt like I was the only person posting, you know, maybe there were 40 people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you were putting all the energy in. Yeah. And then so the the two things that happen in there that we really keep an eye on is self-promo posts. So if mm-hmm. someone's just trying to sell themselves, like they're just literally popping in, posting an event and then popping out, it gets deleted. So self-promo posts can happen when there's a share thread. And yeah, with like the when purpose, it's relevant. Yeah. Or when it's relevant. Exactly. And then the second thing that does happen is every once in a while, someone will ask a question and then the response is either kind of a shaming that it's a bad question or this is the only way to do it. And so those ones get deleted. Because I've seen that quite a bit in other Facebook groups where someone will just ask a question because they want to learn more and they'll get really shot down for even like daring to pose that question. And it just seems so mean spirited when they're genuinely asked to learn about something and people attacking them for it. Mm -hmm. Because I think that when we post online, and I'm tempted to do it too, when I see a post and I just think, oh, you know, I don't agree with that. There's that initial reaction. But if I take a step back and I think, how can I help this other yoga teacher or this, you know, this is my peer, this is another yoga professional. You know, if there was a... (laughs) a group of us standing in person, would we talk like that to them? (laughs) No. And there's this fine balance and it's not easy as a moderator. I have two other people who help me with moderating. And then also group members will sometimes report a post, but we need to look at, can we allow someone to really voice their opinion on something? Because that's really important while doing it in a way that is supporting the other person. And sometimes tone just doesn't translate online. Like it could be, like it's a fine line between something that someone would perceive as being a bit aggressive and someone else is just being direct. It must be a pretty challenging job being a moderator. And I imagine it would take a lot of time as well of yours. Do you find it challenging to keep a balance for yourself as to how much time you spend online dealing with all of this? Yeah. And I'm working on it with a coach of mine, actually, to fit in the projects that kind of move everything forward. So the projects that really serve yoga teachers are the podcast, articles, you know, the content that I can create and to do that first and then to carve out, like to block out time to go in and engage because it is important to go in and be part of the conversation. And for me to hear what questions are coming up 
that's exactly what feeds the podcast and the articles. Yeah, because I guess those are real questions that people are asking. So that's a great direction to to take. Yeah, it's amazing. People say, do you run out of ideas? I'm like, no, actually, <laughs> I feel like if I like could clone myself, we could do five podcasts a week, but it's a lot of work. As you guys know, yeah. to put a podcast together is a lot. This is circling a little bit back to the online stuff. Like, do you have any advice for other yogis who want to build and connect with an online community? To build a community? I think just to remember to know that... <laughs> Until you get, you know, between, you need between 100 and 500 people for there to be more engagement, but that doesn't mean that it isn't effective. So if you start a new Facebook group, I would say just be ready to post regularly, be ready to answer your own posts. You know, if you ask a question and it's just crickets, that's okay. And then to keep with it. That's all I did. And to carve out that time. That's really encouraging advice because I think if it was me, I might have got disheartened before I got to 500 people. So <laughs> it's good to know that if you keep keep at it, then it does start to pay off. Even if at the beginning, it feels like you're not getting a lot back from the energy that you're putting in. Mm-hmm. And a couple of technical things. So there are the three questions that are now there for Facebook groups. Those are really key and very important. So our first question is, are you a yoga teacher or are you in a yoga teacher training? And lots of people are interested in yoga, but we want a community of yoga teachers. And then you can ask all kinds of things. You can ask what challenges people are facing in those questions. You know, maybe you have really specific questions. Our last one is, have you listened to the podcast? And it will give a link. And lots of people at the beginning had never heard the podcast, but they had just found the Facebook group. Ah. Mm-hmm. And so it was a way of advertising. The next kind of geeking out on Facebook group <laughs> tip <laughs> that I have is to do a welcome post. So Facebook makes it pretty easy now where you can just click a button and it will tag everyone that's new. That is super important because people might join a group, but then forget about it. So the tag will bring it up in their notifications and bring them into the conversation. Oh, that is a really good tip. Mm. This is another question around social media. And I guess it's something that I've noticed in myself. I tend to have a better experience on social media if I'm not feeling too vulnerable when I'm on there. Sometimes I notice that social media can have like a really negative effect on self-esteem, especially if maybe you've gone online looking for community or even like you're really putting a lot of energy into trying to build your business and not getting a lot of energy back from it. And when you look online, of course, you see all of the people who are really prominent and really successful and have a lot of followers. Do you have any tips to kind of navigate this when I guess you've gone online because you really are looking for something, but the experience of being there is actually having the negative effect for what you went looking for? Yeah, it's interesting. I had a conversation with a friend about this yesterday and she was saying that same thing. And I have this as well. Actually, I was sitting on Instagram last night, flipping through and thinking, uh, I'm just feeling worse about myself that I can't do all these crazy yoga poses. So I have to shut this down. But she was talking about this feeling of look what everyone else is doing. And I was giving that some thought last night thinking, I think that's a message from ourself. Like one, shut it down, stop following people (laughs) that feel bad. You can. And then I think it's a message that we need to be digging in a little bit more and doing what really is our niche or our work here in the world. Like it's speaking loudly, you're not meeting your potential. And I don't mean that in a in a shaming way. I mean that there's something really calling to you and it's just not here yet. That's, That's what I really think. I take on it. Yeah, absolutely. Like instead of feeling less than like use it as a driving force to help you find where like what you should be doing. Like Yeah, I guess that comes back to Spadyaya. You know. Self-study. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I I think it's just the, I mean, there are tons of studies being done now that social media really does tap into that um, not feeling enough. And you have to remember, I remember a friend of mine saying, wow, your family vacation looks so nice. And there was this one photo that she commented on. And I said to her, just so you know, like right after that picture was taken, the kids all started fighting and there was screaming and crying. Like it was one snapshot 
that looked perfect. And then (laughs) (laughs) the way of of like, sometimes everyone's been in the car for days and then they're sick of each other. And I obviously didn't take a photo of that. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you did, that's not the one that made it onto Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that I really appreciate following people who are pretty authentic and sometimes like make fun of those. And also the ones that inspire me, like, oh, try this new movement or that give me more information. There's something a little bit deeper than the glamour, I guess. And I think it's important. Also, I work with a lot of yoga teachers who say, I'm not flexible enough to share live video. I'm not young enough. And It is so important for us to have that, you know, let's get different shapes of bodies sharing different yoga poses. Like I'm really inspired by that. Yeah. And reflecting that diversity online is just going to help people who haven't tried yoga before feel like that's something that could be for them. Like if everyone looks like a model, then that's such a deterrent for people in different body sizes or different ages to even go to class. Because if we as yoga teachers are feeling intimidated by what we feel online, like Mm. what effect is that having on someone who already has that barrier of not having tried yoga before? They think that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I'd like to just circle back to something you said before when we were talking about let that discontent with what you're seeing and how it sits with how you're feeling about yourself be something that kind of fuels you to find your niche Do you have any advice for yoga teachers who really don't know what their niche is yet and what could help them find their way there or evolve it? Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite topics is working on me. I have got got that from your podcast. I do really like hearing about it. (laughs) And I think that it's important to try on different niches, that it's not like, okay, this is going to be it and this will be what I do for the rest of my life. But I think that all of the interests that we have from childhood, like for instance, I had a little Fisher Price radio and I loved to do my own little radio show when I was younger. And then you'd think, well, what does that have to do? Then I became a yoga teacher. So how could that even tie in? But all of the experiences and curiosities of people really fuel that unique niche. So for example, a yoga teacher might have a real struggle with chronic pain. And oftentimes they can speak to that so well that that becomes their niche. And and they work mainly with people who have chronic pain. That doesn't mean that they don't teach like a hot vinyasa flow as well, but maybe the bulk of their focus and their niche is in that one area. Does that help? That's, mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like look at what's happening in your life journey and kind of how you've dealt with that and then I think as well it's a great cue that if this is something that you've dealt with probably other people are as well and if you've really had to search for things that help especially if it is say something like chronic pain or even maybe yoga for a particular sport that you do if you're the demand then obviously the demand is there because this is something that's helped you so that's something you can really share with other people what if you really feel like you've got this thing that you want to share but it's just not really resonating with people like people aren't looking into your workshops a couple other ways to look at this is you can kind of niche down in looking at who you serve, like who your audience is. So say you decide to teach prenatal yoga, but like you said, you have a prenatal yoga workshop, you offer it, and then no one's signing up. I think to go back and to look at your message and to see, am I digging into a struggle? Like how am I helping those people is another part of that. My guess is it's not that, like sometimes I'll hear from yoga teachers, well, there's just no one interested in that. I think it's marketing your yoga offering. And some people hate the word marketing. (laughs) So (laughs) telling people, telling people about your yoga offering so that they can see the value in it, that they can see how it will help them, what struggle it's helping with or or what challenge it's it's dealing with. I think it's about clarity of the message. And so do you think that, say, you were running a workshop 
for mothers to be, it's helpful to kind of pose questions in your promotional material or can, like, is it an overt asking a question and then answering it yourself? Or is that just more something you have in the back of your mind as you're writing things? So I would say one really key tool that I like to use with yoga teachers is to list out 15 statements of I believe. I can't remember where I got this. I'd love to give credit. I know it was on a podcast. It wasn't a yoga podcast. It was more of a entrepreneur marketing one. And so in that list of 15, you just start with I believe and then whatever statement comes up in prenatal yoga. So I'm pretty passionate about prenatal yoga And I really, one of my I believe statements is that I believe that everyone who's teaching pregnant people should have a minimum 85 hour RPYT training and see how that, that I believe statement would sort of push people's buttons a little bit. I think those are the key I believe statements to get into. So another example is if you're looking at teaching to students is I believe pregnant women are powerful and capable So that's one of my I believe statements. And that is the messaging there that can really fuel your unique business. And those are the messages that you want to make sure in your marketing. You could ask questions like you could say, are you wanting a yoga class that's specific to prenatal? Now, one thing I know just from experience is that pregnant women like community. They want to build a community of other expectant moms moms to be they want to get to know those people so that could be a big part of it yeah that's really helpful and I can already see how making that list of 15 statements would give you a real sense of direction and purpose and could be a real like, touchstone to come back to if you are feeling mm. a little bit doubtful about your direction and I guess you yeah can, you can continue to add to the list as you evolve Yeah. And when you put that message out there, people that resonate with that are going to find you. So it kind of clears out the people that you don't want to work with and lets those other people know, oh, that person teaches a yoga class for me. So for example, one of my most successful yoga classes before moving into yoga for pelvic health, because that is really, it fits my alignment, it fits my students, was gentle yoga for hips and shoulders. And people were coming thinking, I have pain in my hips and my shoulders. Like that, that was why they were coming to that class. If that class is listed and a gentle yoga class is listed, which one are you going to go to? Oh yeah, the one that's like so specific to what you need. And it's such a great topic to choose because I usually ask at the start of my classes, does anyone have anything they want to work on today? And hips and shoulders are the top two (laughs) answers or neck and lower back, which is just, you know, what's next to the hips and shoulders. (laughs) Yeah. And I think then it starts to challenge, like some yoga teachers will say to me, it's all yoga. Sure, it is. And how can you get people to show up? Because usually those are also the teachers that are saying my class sizes are small, you know, I want more students. I want to reach and help more students. Okay, well, let's market to what they what really speaks to them. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I want to just circle back to something you're saying about your prenatal classes and about how community is so important to those mothers to be. And it really makes sense that like a prenatal yoga class is a great place to connect to other people. But I've actually found yoga is a really great place to like often when I've been traveling, I found going to a yoga class is a really good way to kind of ground myself in a new community. My question is, say you're a yoga teacher looking to build a physical in-person community rather than online and maybe you're in a remote place, or maybe you're feeling lonely in a big city. Do you have any tips for people wanting to kind of build real life community as well? A yoga teacher I was just talking with this week, shoot, I can't remember who it was, (laughs) told me that she offers 15 minutes at the beginning of her class where everyone can, so it's her group class and they're all really chatty. So she allows 15 minutes of rolling their feet out on balls or the massage, they massage their feet or she'll lead something in terms of massage that they can all do 
while they check in and talk to each other. So they all share how they're doing. And then they get into the yoga class because she was saying that they really wanted to be chatty. And so she didn't want to eliminate that, but she also didn't want it taking up the whole class. So I think- yeah, yeah. It's a good strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and and I have been to yoga classes where I really appreciate that there's just this silence, you know, but sometimes often for those group classes, when we ran, so I managed a yoga studio for five years, not that long ago, right before the podcast started. And the number one reason they were coming to class was community. So unless it's just our town and then the fun things that you can do outside of that. So one time I ran a prenatal stretch and stroller or something. So we, (laughs) we literally went to the park. I offered a few stretches before we went out walking. And so all these moms were just walking together, talking with their strollers. I felt guilty charging (laughs) (laughs) for my time. And they were asking if I could do it again. And I said to them, you don't, you guys could do this, do these five stretches at the beginning, walk together. But honestly, looking back at it now, it's the time put into organizing something that really makes it worthwhile. Those moms never did continue with it. So I would say, look, at. I just saw a man who gets paid to walk with people. He's called the people walker. (laughs) (laughs) And he literally just goes to their house, walks with them and talks to them and they pay him. It's his full-time job. Oh, wow. So I think that people are really craving community right now in the United States. I know that the rate of, they've done science to say that the rate of loneliness is going up. So how can we, you know, get people together? I was thinking of doing a little yoga in my garden in August because I don't see my students in the summer. I take the summer off. So many ways. One of our best community building ways at the yoga studio was around Robin. So community in terms of teachers and students. We would get yoga teachers from around our community to come in (laughs) and depending on how many teachers there were. So say there were 10 teachers that showed up, it's two hours. So they'd all get a chunk of the time in there to teach the class. And it's kind of like impromptu teaching. You don't know what the last person is going to end with and you just jump up and you can introduce yourself or just go right into the flow. And then students could take that class. Ah. Yeah. And really, and then we did a by donation and all of that money went to buy passes for people who couldn't afford it. So it was a real community building experience. Oh, that's a lovely idea. Mm, absolutely. And we've, we've actually spoken to a few teachers here who find yoga teaching to be a fairly isolating experience because you know you're teaching a class you might see someone in between classes that then you've got to go and they've got to teach so do you have any other ways that you think that yoga teachers could connect with each other outside of these round robins or (laughs) on the internet yeah for sure on the internet building up relationships is amazing I would say if you can get together even yesterday I got together with two yoga peers and they're really interested in yoga for pelvic health. And so we got together for the whole afternoon. I was a bit stressed because I was thinking, I have so much work to do. I know they're really busy as well. They were thinking the same thing, but we had lunch together and we just talked. And honestly, it's just, it's pretty important to feel like you can just have a place to, I don't know if I want to use the word vent, but kind of like this is a pacing, you know, here's a student I'm, of course, we don't share students' names, but here's an issue that they're dealing with. And what would you do in this situation, you know, and sharing resources, books, and just getting together and supporting each other is amazing, even if it's just one other yoga teacher. Because that's peer mentoring, right? Like it's not so much someone who you are seeking out because they're, I guess, I don't know, I don't want to say more evolved, more experienced perhaps. And often people kind of think, oh, yeah, I have to go to someone more senior than me to get these questions answered. But often people who are newer teachers even or teachers have been teaching about the same amount of time like everyone's got a different perspective and different experiences so it can be so valuable just to connect and kind of ask those questions yeah and I would say there's a real place for that right now if 
you could easily build, anyone could build that into their community where say there's just a day for yoga teachers. They do some restorative yoga. You can break off and do different activities where they're talking with partners, kind of what we would do in a yoga teacher training, but just a, you know, a one day thing. And we're going to share, like we had kind of set up where we were each going to share a question that we're really dealing with. And then two new things that we had learned. Uh, I don't know if we really followed the outline. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's good to have it, even if you don't follow it, just so everyone's got kind of plenty to share, you know, if the conversation just doesn't flow organically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in looking at that, I will tell you that one of those yoga teachers, if we had a different mindset, we are basically teaching the same thing. So her and I both, she was telling me about a workshop that she's going to do for pelvic health. And I don't feel like she's threatening me as a yoga teacher. I'm just excited that more people are going to learn about it. And so watch those things that come up in ourself that comes back to the spadhyaya If you are feeling like, oh, that person's offering the same thing as me, they can't. There's no way that two different people can teach the same thing and it be the same thing. There's no way. So she, we're both in the same area and we refer people to each other and we are building the awareness of pelvic health, yoga for pelvic health in our entire area. We will both have more students doing that. Absolutely. If you decided that you didn't want to interact with that person or deal with that person, you've effectively cut off like the one person in your community who can really kind of get what you're going through and that peer mentoring situation, like rather than kind of seeing them as a competitor, like see them as your community. That makes so much more sense. Mm. And that person often is your support person. So if the, yeah. if you live in a small town and, you know, there's five yoga teachers and you don't want to get together with them and share ideas because you feel like they'll steal your ideas. Like they're really, they're your community. They can give you, you'll have ideas beyond what you can do as often a group. just that shared inspiration of talking to someone else just sparks so many new ideas anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they'll probably be the person who can cover your class when you need someone. <laughs> That is another really key piece of building community. Like who are your main yoga subs? So you've got this great quote on your website, which I'll I'll read out to you. If you're like me and you've got more questions than answers on this yoga entrepreneurship journey, you're in the right place. And hosting a podcast is a really great chance to get to ask those questions. We've got to ask you some of them just now that you might've had on your mind. Are there any really illuminating answers that you recall that you've got to ask people on your podcast and would like to share. I feel like those ones come when I'm not expecting them. And often it really relates back to my own practice. Recently, I've been playing around with this question in my mind of, should I be striving to be a better person, which I've always felt like I need to learn and strive to be a better person overall, or versus feeling like I'm enough. So there's this little, um, it's not little, it's very big (laughs) inner struggle. You know, I need to do my practice every day. Well, can I be gentle with myself and not feel like it has to be an hour every day? Uh, Can I feel like walking outside is the same? So it, it plays out in different ways in my mind, but I feel like the, when I boil it right down, it's that striving versus being okay with what is right now. Oh, it sounds like Thera and Sukha, like, you know, (laughs) that striving and then the contentment and the interplay between them. (laughs) Yeah. And so a few of the guests have brought that in. Amy Har did the trauma sensitive and she really made me think about, are we asking our students to strive for goals instead of just being with what is. So it's still a question I don't really have answered. I'd love to hear other people's take on it for sure. But I feel like if yoga teachers, when I lead a yoga teacher training, if they're not feeling stuck and like they don't have all the answers, I'm a bit afraid. Like, ah. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> well, like, no matter how long the training goes for, you always leave thinking like, oh, I've just started this journey. I'm mm. only at the beginning of everything that I want to know and that I need to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jules Mitchell talked about that when she came on. And I feel like she knows a lot, you know, about stretching and muscles Absolutely. and anatomy. 
Yeah. <laughs> but she was, <laughs> she was speaking to how many more questions she has now. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. Like, <laughs> then, you know, if you are doubting yourself and if you have questions and don't be afraid to ask them, like there are no stupid questions. I think that's important. And I know online that we're afraid a bit to ask those questions in different Facebook groups. But honestly, if you have that question, someone else always does. And I feel like maybe school made us afraid to ask those questions. But as adults, just really own it. Like, I don't know that. I I was talking to two yoga teachers who are super in the pelvic health world. One of them said a word and I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the other one's like, oh, neither do I. I just didn't want to say. (laughs) I think owning it, run away from the teachers who say they have all the answers and look for the ones who have more questions. I think even on a one-on-one level, it's quite a trap to fall into if someone say shows up to your class, says, I've got this back issue and you think you know the answers as to what is right for them and kind of telling them what's right for them as opposed to asking the questions and together actually finding out what feels right in that person's body at this time. And I think when I first started teaching, I felt like a good yoga teacher would know the answers and would just know exactly the right thing for that person. But the more that I've been doing this, the more that I've just learned by experience that everyone is so different. Even two people with the exact same injury might need completely different things and it's going to change day by day. Yeah. This is such an important part of teaching yoga that when someone comes to you and they tell you, because they tell you all kinds of things that you wouldn't know unless you're a medical doctor and even then you might not know about. And just to go back to that, every single person is an individual. So I will see two people with endometriosis and they're completely opposite. So two people with the same thing and they're presenting in totally different ways. So never assume that this is their experience because it's someone else. So for example, like you said, back pain, (laughs) I feel like that's the most common thing that comes into a yoga class. And we have no idea unless we were living in that person's body. And also it's an on our job. Like it's our job to empower them to kind of find the answers for their own body, not to give them answers. And yoga teachers reach for an anatomy training when this comes up. Mm. So it's great. It's great to have an anatomy training and to have that information and keep learning. But that's not, it's going exactly what you said. It's going to be the questions that you ask that person. And I guess the more training you have, the more skillful you can be with your questions and the more directions you can choose from, like I guess the more options that you have when you know more, but there's still always just going to be those I don't know ones. Yeah. And I think the best learning tool is working one-on-one with people because then you have the immediate feedback. Like let's try this pose and you have enough space to modify the poses. You have enough time. Like you're not working with a group of 20 people. And I believe, this is one of my I believe statements, that we are trained right from our 200 hour to work one-on-one with people more so than a group. So if one person walks walks in for a one-on-one and they have back pain, you can move into poses. And if it increases the pain, then you modify right then. If you have a group of 20 people and five of them have back pain, guaranteed most of them are not telling you. Mm, Absolutely. So you have that feedback time with someone one-on-one and those people teach you so much. They will ask the questions as well. Like it's pretty rare that someone would speak up in a group class when they had a question, even if it was just like, what am I meant to be feeling here? But when it's (laughs) one-on-one, you can have a whole conversation about it. Exactly. Exactly. This is something that I have. um, I teach quite a few people one-on-one and some of them are pretty chatty. And my approach is usually that maybe that's the yoga class today. Like maybe they need a sense of community and someone to talk to. So I kind of just go with their flow. But I'm wondering if you have any strategies to bring it back to the yoga if it starts to feel like it's just talking about their morning at work or some things that you think maybe aren't what you're there for? Yeah, (laughs) this is such a good question. 
I definitely rely on my Kundalini training for this one. So in Kundalini, I felt like our meditation was like, do this breath practice, have your eyes like this, move your hands like this, and then repeat this silent mantra in your mind. Like by that point, there's no space for making conversation. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're getting them to focus on the breath, get them to lift one hand on the inhale, lower that hand on the exhale. And if they're still talking through that, you know, getting them to count the inhale and the exhale and just notice what the count of the breath is. So the other thing I think helps is when they share something with me, like one woman was telling me, Uh, recently that she was really busy with her grandkids and lifting them a lot and telling me all about their time together. And so we, I just brought it back to, okay, let's see if we can have a little time where we're really nurturing you in this and let's move into this pose. I think that would be helpful, you know, and you, there's a way I learned this in Thai yoga massage. There's a way to be polite in conversation but not invite more conversation. So nice. Yeah. I think that is the balance. Like definitely like I want to hear what they have to say, but I'm, I'm there yeah. to do the yoga. <laughs> yeah. And keep bringing it back to like questions about the body and being in the body in that moment, I think are important, but also you can use the, the tactic of answering a question, like answering, like you've heard them or, but then not inviting more, you know, how many grandkids do you have? You know, where do yeah. they live? Those are, that's conversation. But the other, the other way where you're just like, that's, that's wonderful. That's kind of curbing conversation. Strangely, I feel it more with one-on-one than with group classes. Do you have anything that you do for yourself to get yourself in a really good state of mind before you teach? If say you've had the hectic morning that um, I would tell you about. I have that more when I'm able to teach group class, I kind of allow a 10 minute window for myself to go in, do a little practice and meditation after I've set up the space. But I'm lucky because I have time at that studio. There's the time before when I'm teaching one-on-one, I teach in a physiotherapy office. So they book it just like a physio office. And I don't have a lot of time. I need my morning practice and kind of my self-care So I just don't start my appointments until nine is the earliest. I aim for 10. So I'm not rushed that morning. And so that's your self-care. Yeah, definitely. Just like (laughs) giving yourself space. Yeah, that's personally. And I also don't book more than four in a day. Four is my number of classes as well. More than that, I could do it one day, but I'm not going to be doing much the next day. (laughs) No, it takes a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's really wise. And one great thing about that is when you switch that mindset to say, now my maximum is four, it actually has this amazing impact on your business where you, even if you're not saying it, you kind of have this in your mind that spaces are limited. It switches it from like, oh, I can't get enough one-on-one work to my time is limited and really important. And (laughs) if you don't book in this week, like you might have to wait a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great strategy. I know for myself, sometimes say I've, I'm a bit exhausted and I'm teaching the class that night and it was a struggle to peel myself off the couch to go out and teach that <laughs> class. That's not something that I'd share with that group. I might phrase it as, oh, my energy levels are a little low tonight. So how does everyone feel about doing a more restorative practice? And I'm wondering if in your practice and in your podcast, because you really share a lot online, is there a, a balance between what's personal and what you choose to share? Is that something that you think about or something that's just kind of natural for you? I do think about it. Uh, It was an interview with Carol Cox, who works with speakers, because I think it's important to share what's really going on. At the same time, I give a lot of thought to what Carol said in that interview. And she said she doesn't share anything that she's still processing. (laughs) Ah, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. And so I also having three teenagers, I was just talking about this this morning, because often my, so my middle son is 15. So they're 13, 15 and 19. And some of their friends follow me on Instagram, 
or Facebook and because I have a public account. And so I always have to think, would my kids be okay with their friends saying, oh, I saw this post from your mom. <laughs> you know, so that takes out, I, I kind of think of this with like, when I scroll through a yoga teacher, it's mostly on Instagram. And I think, oh, that, like that's quite a lot of nudity. Like I, and I am not against the, a nude body, but I know my kids would be mortified if I had like a half nude photo on there and their friends said, oh yeah, I saw your mom's post. So those <laughs> kind of things. Um, and I'm, I, I would say I'm pretty modest in that way anyway. So that's just my personality, but also like issues that we're, working through. Okay. So two things that play into this, is it my story to share? Could I really care for the other person? Is it even my story to share is one great question. And then the other thing is, have I processed all of the emotions with this? So if it, if it doesn't hit both of those, I don't usually share it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess by the time that you, if it is something that required a bit of process, by the time you get to the other end of that, maybe the decision wouldn't even be a decision. It would either be something that just felt really natural to share or something that you realised just would affect too many other people or just wasn't necessary to share. Mm -hmm. And then I need to keep going back to what is helpful for my audience. I'm not as good at this on Instagram. <laughs> I like to share cat videos. Oh, there's oh. so much cat on my Instagram. <laughs> I think that's kind of what it's for. <laughs> <laughs> so I do ask myself on the podcast for sure, is this helpful for the yoga teachers that I'm working with? So I think, you know, if you teach mainly restorative yoga and then you're posting all handstands, I would just take a look and say like, hmm, what, what message am I giving here? Is it helping, you know, the people who need restorative yoga? I think a cat video always helps though. So don't hold back on those. <laughs> <laughs> That's never going to make anyone feel bad about themselves. <laughs> cats are very, very into the restorative work. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I know. I just took a picture of my cat yesterday laid out on the couch. I was like, oh yeah, that's some cat yoga right there. <laughs> Hashtag cat yoga. <laughs> I love it when people share what's really going on in their life. I follow someone on Instagram. It's Natalie Ekdahl of the Biz Chick podcast and I love how you know the podcast is really professional all about business and then her Instagram stories are all about her and her kids and just goofing around I love that nice yeah that's lovely <laughs> talking about business uh, on your podcast you do have a balance to talk about the business of yoga and also guests who are experts in their field who talk more about teaching and practices is this a considered approach or does it just happen naturally it is Maybe it should be a little more considered. I I just heard from someone the other day, like I'm tuning in for the business side of things and I'd like to have more of the business side. So I feel like I might run a poll of the group to find out if they think the balance is okay. I did look at uh, some upcoming episodes because it was like yoga for fibromyalgia, yoga for endometriosis, yoga for <laughs> interstitial cystitis. I thought wow, we're like, we're tipping over into yoga for specific ailments. So I mixed in some business things with it. And it is something that I do keep in mind. It can be a little trickier to get sometimes guests. I like to pull from outside the yoga world for those business ones. I think they're really helpful. Like, for example, I've been trying so hard to get a lawyer to come and talk to us about the legal side of things or an insurance company to talk about the insurance side of things. Those are hard interviews to get. Oh, those people never want to make like commitments online or, you know. <laughs> I found a lawyer who's going to talk to us. Oh, I'm fantastic. super excited. Yeah. And I want to say, like, I actually really love the mix. I feel like business yoga podcasts are the ones that I feel like I should listen to more. But actually, people going right into specific issues or the ailments is actually really helpful as well, especially something like fibromyalgia, which probably doesn't get a lot of airplay in a teacher training course, but affects so many people and is so different for so many people. Like, that is a really great one to kind of get some in-depth discussion on. One of my favorite episodes of yours was the rectus diastasis episode with um, yes. 
gosh, I can't remember her name now. That's Dr. Terrible. Sinead DeFore. That's oh, okay. Yes. It's Dr. Sinead DeFore. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. And that completely changed my perception of the core. And we, like we spoke about that with a previous episode where we spoke to a doula. And so even though that was a specific issue, that really played into how I see the rest of the body and how I teach. So I would definitely say, don't feel like you've got to do more business interviews. I love the, like, I really love the mix. Yeah. Sinead's going to be on the podcast again, talking about pelvic girdle pain. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Yeah. I'm super excited about that because I feel like that's the, you know, the hip pain that everyone's coming in with. That's a great episode for that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good to know. There's like one vote. (laughs) Yeah, a really great podcast to listen to. And I have no affiliation with this podcast. I just love listening to it. I have three teenagers. So if they overheard it, I wouldn't be devastated, but I don't listen to it with even my teenagers. They're younger, like in their twenties, these guys, and there's quite a bit of swearing, but they have an amazing Mm -hmm. podcast where it's called sick boys, sick boy, sorry, sick boy. I don't know if it's even just at sickboy.com. I'm not sure, but it's a sick boy podcast and they talk in depth with guests about some really specific diseases or mental health issues. They, they really dig in and they hear from that person. So I feel like for me, it's one of those podcasts that really fuels just knowing the population and what someone would be dealing with, say if they had MS. So they have a, an episode there on MS. Oh yeah. yeah. That sounds Mm -hmm. great. And also say you wanted to research something like that because you had a new client with that issue, like online, there is a lot of information, but it's from the practitioner's point of view usually so it's the medical side of things so to hear someone's real life experience just gives you so much more insight into all of the other things that we could be helping them with in a personalized yoga practice much more than like docs online would give us (laughs) (laughs) it's so true it's important to hear how someone is feeling on that note at our physiotherapy office, one of the physiotherapists asked me if I'd be do this three-part thing. So a group of women with endometriosis were coming in. They were going to tell what their experience was like. The physiotherapist was then going to talk about endometriosis and what it's like generally. And then I was going to do a yoga portion for them. And I knew nothing about endometriosis before this day. So what helped so much is to hear their take on how they were feeling in their bodies, what struggles they were facing, and then to see them build community in there and support. And then the physiotherapist did a talk and I was like, oh, now I understand more like medically what's going on. And then the yoga. I think it's an amazing model that if yoga teachers can pair up with physios, chiros, massage therapists, they could they could cover a lot of different things. And I guess it comes back as well to what we were saying before about asking questions. So if say someone does come to you and you don't know a lot about the issue that they're dealing with, you can always ask them. You can ask them what struggles they're dealing with, what they hope that yoga will help them with. Like there's nothing, there's so much right with asking that person as opposed to feeling like you have to have the answers. Yeah. And I take notes. So I'm asking questions and the taking notes helps me to listen, process, and then jot things down so that later it's almost like putting different pieces together, like the next week to hear how they're doing. So ask people really simple questions like, what's your pain level on a scale of one to 10? What's your stress level like? Uh, Is your stress level different at home or at work? Like these are basic questions that we can ask people. And then when they say, I have this thing and you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I've never heard of that. Then you say to them, how does that affect your mobility? How does that affect your life? Tell me what movements, how it impacts you. I think as well, sometimes part of the barrier for teachers, I know I used to feel like this, is I felt like they wouldn't have confidence in me as a teacher if I didn't know what was going on. But I've really found that people are very happy to tell you the answers to those questions. And actually it's something that they lack often when they go and see a specialist or a doctor who doesn't have a lot of time to listen to them. Like that's something we can really offer as yoga teachers, just that time and space to listen. Yeah. I think that if we go back to what are, what are the foundation pieces of yoga, 
as well. So it's breath, movement, you know, in, in that it might be, well, definitely yoga philosophy plays in for me, the eight limbs mainly in that, but lots of other pieces of it. And then maybe there are other things that you use like mudra, mantra, meditation. And those are the things that you really have to know as a yoga teacher. And sure, when someone tells you like, I'm having trouble sleeping at night. Okay. What yoga poses, what breath helps people to get back to sleep? That's what you have to know. Mm. Not like their condition that then like go with what they're dealing with in that day. And also, I guess with that approach of, well, here's some things that you can try, like, let me know next week how it went for you. Exactly. (laughs) Because two different people, like you might lengthen the exhale and add a little pause to that breath. And that might really relax and put someone to sleep. And then the next person is just like, whoa, I feel like I'm running out of breath. I have my anxiety levels going through the roof. Yeah. And now I feel bad about myself because I'm not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have any words of advice to people who might be starting a podcast of their own or are perhaps a few months into their podcast <laughs> journey? <laughs> Just know it is scary. I think for everyone, it is normal to be really afraid when you're putting something out there. And so I still get nervous. Like before this interview, I was like, whoa, you know, I, I have this interview to do or if I'm interviewing someone who I feel like, oh my gosh, do I know enough? Like there's always that feeling before we launch something. You know, as yoga teachers, we're talking in front of students and then we decide to do a workshop or a training and it's always kind of pushing that boundary. And I think if you're not feeling kind of uncomfortable and afraid, you're probably not really pushing to where you potentially could go. So push into the discomfort the one word that I had out the whole year before my podcast was try. So (laughs) I didn't have to like succeed and knock it out of the park. I just had to try it. And that was it. That would be like that trying and that effort was enough in itself. And it's scary. So I would say like, just try it. Just so your listeners know, I was using my microphone wrong for like 30 episodes. I had it backwards. Oh, (laughs) I think that's poor design. If it was not obvious enough, which was the front and which was the back, that it took you 30 episodes to notice. I think something, you know, I think there was a designer who could have made things a little bit more simple. (laughs) You're being really generous with that. It it definitely has a front to it. Uh, but I and my audio editor was like it's like cover up the windows in your room like can you put I was like podcasting with blankets over my head and I think like all you really need is I have a blue yeti microphone it's not the most expensive by far like you do not need an expensive microphone so it just hooks into my computer and that's basically it like you're ready to go all of the tech kind of holds people back but mostly it's the fear like you'll you'll see this when a yoga teacher goes to put a website together they want everything to be perfect mm-hmm. well that's that's the like imposter syndrome i'm not enough who am i to share this that's really what's usually going on. It just means you're going to be working on that website for like the next five years and it's still not going to be perfect mm. because that's just not attainable. You'll always think of something else that you need to approve or you need to change. Yeah. I got the Connected Yoga Teacher website up and it didn't even have an about page. Like it was just like the podcast and the homepage because that's all I could do. I was like on the fly, get it done quick and dirty. And that's not my personality. It was coaching that helped me to launch pick a launch day is another one if you're teaching a workshop or you're launching something pick the day and tell someone (laughs) (laughs) and you've already given us so many gems and so much great advice but I'm just wondering is there one key piece of wisdom that you would just like every student or mentee or I guess even podcast listener to kind of get from what you're putting out there in the world? Is there like a key thread to all of your teachings? I think one key piece is forever the student. So forever learning is really important to me. I think that if we got to a place where, and in that student role, there's three 
main components for me is to learn something, really integrate it into my own personal practice, and then share it with my yoga students or the teachers that I work with, with a real understanding of how that worked for me. And then then you have that excitement. So when you learn something, (laughs) pick it in as much as you can, learn something in small drips where you could really take this small piece of information, integrate it, and then decide, does this work? And really filter the information that you're getting. Like somebody might have something that worked really well for them, but it is not, it just doesn't fit your life or your body. And so pick what works and then share that whatever makes you excited. Yeah, that's great advice. Mm, Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. It's been really great to talk to you. Well, it's been amazing to talk to you guys. I feel like uh, I listened to your podcast and now it's pretty exciting to get this much time. Oh, me too, because I listen to your podcast all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, thank thank you. you. And that was a great conversation with Shannon. I've already put into action a couple of things she mentioned, including welcoming new members to our Facebook group using the functionality that Facebook provides. And it actually does work to build a strong conversation. So speaking of which, if you want to join our Facebook group, just search on Facebook for the Flow Artist Podcast community and come say hi. You can also connect on our website at podcast.flowartist.com and we would absolutely love to hear from you. Next week on the podcast, we have an interview with yoga teacher Jace Tepatu. He's based in Wellington, New Zealand and this episode, it really means a lot to me. I really resonated with a lot of what he has to say. We're both Māori and we're both men and we touch on some issues around both of those areas. So some of what we talk about is really quite raw and real and it gets emotional at places so I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. Okay, so if you haven't already, please rate, review, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd also love it if you could share our episodes on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, so we can spread our message to the world. As always, the theme song is Baby Robots by Go Soul, and you can buy his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. You'll be hearing from us again in a fortnight. Aroha nui, big, big love.